Father, we're here this morning to do nothing other than to glorify and exalt and to magnify the beautiful name of your son, Jesus Christ. God, there is no name that is like his name. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And because of that, his name is beautiful. Because in his name, we find our salvation. So Father, we thank you and we praise you that you, in your grace and your mercy, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to come and do for us what we could have never done for ourselves. Father, we know that one day at his name, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the praise, the glory of your name. So Father, this morning, will you draw our hearts to a place of authentic worship of him? to sing and to lift and to magnify and to exalt his name. So Father, now through your word, as we hear his name, as we continue today to sing his name, would we call on his name and be saved and be reminded of the salvation we found in him? So Holy Spirit, we yield to you. Father, we ask now that you use your word to edify your church and glorify your name, that you would sanctify us in the truth of your word, we ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. 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 Hey, can we thank our worship team uh, for leading us this morning? Uh, thank you guys so much uh, for, for what you do. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you're being seated, I'll encourage with you uh, to turn with me your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, right away, I'm going to address the pink elephant in the room because I've had at least six people from both services uh, ask the question because church people are weird like this. Taylor, you've got the table thing again and not the podium. What happened? And here's the true story is we've moved this room around uh, and I'm short. And so it kind of blocks off the first couple. I feel like I got a wall on this middle section here. So uh, because I'm not tall, uh, I once again have my little short table. So uh, now you know, and you don't have to wonder anymore. But uh, what we as a church family have been doing, if you're here today as our guests, is we've been walking uh, together through the Gospel of Matthew chapter 28 and what is known to us as the Great Commission, which is Christ's plan and purpose for his church, his call on the life of every individual follower of Jesus Christ. So what we've been doing uh, through each week of this message series is we've been taking each component of the Great Commission and just breaking it down in depth. So week one, uh, we saw that Christ has all authority. He had conquered the grave. He has risen to new life. He has all authority. And in his authority, which is over heaven and earth, he has called us to go. Then in week two, we saw specifically how he's called us to go and to make disciples. So we looked at uh, what a disciple is, how we become disciples, how we as the local church are called to make disciples. Last week, we saw that this call to make disciples is for all nations. It's not just here locally, it's globally, how the local church is a global mission, and we're called to take the gospel uh, and give every man, woman, and child from every tribe, tongue, and nation every opportunity they can to respond to the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then today, we're going to be seeing uh, the the next component of the Great Commission, how the first thing that Jesus calls 
his followers to do as they call on him and Lord as Savior is to publicly profess their faith through baptism. Uh, Back in the fall, there was a a viral news story that made its rounds on social media and uh, also many major news outlets that you probably saw. And this story uh, was of an elderly gentleman named Genesis James Grindstaff. And he was in hospice care through the Spartanburg Regional Healthcare System. And uh, as he'd entered into hospice care, he had a very uh, unusual, interesting request that he had made uh, as he approached the end of his life. And that request was that he be baptized. His entire life, uh, he professed to be a follower of Jesus, had been engaged in the word of God, but he had never publicly professed his faith in baptism. And his dying wish was uh, that he have the opportunity to do this. It was an incredible story, uh, just amazing what the healthcare team did there as they, uh, they were able to orchestrate a baptism for him where they took a medical tub. It was a 60-gallon medical tub. And they helped him into it. He was seated in it. And he'd had uh, friends and family from around the country who flew in to be able to celebrate this uh, with him. And so the hospital chaplain uh, sat there prayed over him, uh, Genesis James Grindstaff, my beloved son, 84 years old. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's an elderly guy. He's frail. He's in hospice, and he does the best that he possibly can. He, he leans himself over and into the water, and they, they, they helped him in as best as they possibly could. And he went under the water for just a few seconds, and then he came back up with a big smile on his face. He said, that felt good. And and so they they celebrated with him, they cheered him on. And when they asked his son why it was that being baptized, of all things that he requested, why being baptized was his dying wish, his son said his whole life, he's, he's read the Bible, he's professed to be a follower of Jesus, but he'd never taken this step in baptism. And he wanted more than anything for people to know that he believed. And so he took that step. One of the greatest evidences that we've truly come to know Jesus Christ, that we've come to faith in Christ, is that we want to make Christ known. And and the primary fundamental way that Christ calls us to make him known and to declare our faith in him when we come to know him is through baptism. Baptism is a, a clear instruction of the Great Commission. We're going to see it here in just a moment. We've read the passage this morning, go make disciples of all nations, baptize them. Baptism is a clear instruction in the Great Commission, but oftentimes uh, baptism can be controversial even within the church, and we can lack clarity about what it is and who it's for and why we do it. So uh, this morning, that's what we're going to do is we're going to answer some of these questions about baptism. What is baptism? Uh, Who should be baptized? Why should we be baptized? When should we be baptized? How should we be baptized? And the central truth that we're going to see from the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 is that all who personally believe in Christ for salvation are called to publicly follow Christ in baptism. All of us who have professed faith in Jesus Christ have have said that Jesus is not just our Savior, but who is the Lord, who has total sovereign authority over every area of our lives. The way foundationally that we publicly communicate that we belong to Jesus is through the act of baptism. And so uh, here's my hope this morning as we jump into things, just so that all of my cards are on the table right at the get-go this morning. Here's my hope. My hope today, as we look at these things, if you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ and you have never followed Jesus in baptism, my hope is that today you will make the commitment to follow Jesus Christ in baptism and celebrate that when we have baptisms as a church family next week. That today you'll take that next steps card and you'll put your name down and you'll check baptism and next Sunday you'll show up and we will celebrate your baptism together as a church family. That's hope number one. Here's hope number two is that if you're here today and you're not a professing follower of Jesus Christ, 
Or if you're here today and you profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet it becomes clear to you this morning that you have never truly fully surrendered to him as the sovereign Lord over your life, that today you will fully surrender your life to Jesus Christ, and next week we'll celebrate your baptism too. We're rejoicing already this morning. We saw someone respond to the gospel, publicly stood up in this room uh, in the last service and said uh, that he wanted to give his life to Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate his baptism next week. And we pray uh, by the grace of God that that will be the story uh, for some of you here this morning as well. So let's open up God's word again. Uh, Matthew 28, let's read verses 18 through 20. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what is baptism? What is baptism about and, and, and what do we believe as a church about baptism? Uh, Jonathan Lehman uh, has written a, a very short, very helpful book called Understanding Baptism. We've actually got several copies available of it uh, in our Next Steps area. Uh, he defines baptism very comprehensively uh, as a church's act of affirming and portraying a believer's union with Christ by immersing him or her in water and a believer's act of publicly committing him or herself to Christ and his people, thereby uniting a believer to the church and marking off him or her from the world. So uh, that's a, a comprehensive definition. I think a good definition, a nuanced definition. However, uh, if you're like me and you're just a good old boy and you grew up in like a country town called Boone, literally the Boonies, that's where I grew up, and uh, you just need someone to break that down Barney style for you, then this one's for you. Baptism is a public declaration of a personal profession. Baptism is a public declaration of a personal profession. Once we have personally surrendered to Jesus Christ as the Lord of our lives, baptism is the way that we publicly declare to the watching world that we belong to Jesus. And as we're going to see here in just a few moments, it's not the work of baptism that saves us, but what we are doing in baptism is we're declaring to the watching world that we have been saved and we belong to Jesus. As a church family, we teach, we embrace our conviction is believer's baptism by immersion. So specifically, we believe that baptism is for those who have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. They've heard the gospel, believed in the gospel, responded to the gospel, and are publicly professing their faith through baptism. And we carry that out specifically by immersion, meaning we take people under the water and then we raise them back up. The reason for that is pretty simple. Uh, this word baptize, when you dig into the Greek, it very simply means to immerse. It also means to, to dip in or to plunge or to submerge. And what's being visibly demonstrated in believers' baptism by immersion is that we have died to our sin and to our old self that has been buried with Jesus Christ, and we have been raised to walk in the newness of life with him, which is why uh, when we baptize people next week, you'll hear me say something as we baptize people, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. We'll look at that in a moment from Romans 6. So there's a logical progression here in the Great Commission from Matthew 28. And, and this is the progression. One builds upon the other. Jesus instructs his disciples, go. And so as we go, we make disciples. We call people to become followers of Jesus Christ. We share the message of the gospel with them. And when they respond to the gospel, they believe in the gospel. They trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. They, they surrender him as Lord over their lives. They publicly profess that first and, and preferably quickly through believer's baptism. And then once they've been baptized, they're affirmed as followers of Christ. We continue the work of discipleship, which we see in the Great Commission, teaching them to observe or to obey all that Christ has commanded us to do. 
So that's what baptism is. That's what we believe about baptism. But let's dig into the nuance of this a little bit more with a few different questions. First question is, who should be baptized? Well, we believe uh, God's word is clear that this should be every follower of Christ. So again, while many Christians might disagree about the how of baptism or the when of baptism, there's virtually no disagreement that we should be baptized. Pretty much every, every Christian across all generations and regardless of upbringing, we agree uh, that believers in Jesus Christ should be baptized. It's evident and given to us as a command here in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. So, so just as much as the command to go and make disciples or the command to teach them to observe all that he's commanded us, we're given baptism here as an instruction for all believers. And the New Testament pattern of believers' baptism, it begins with the ministry of John the Baptist. It's carried out, continues on through the ministry of Jesus. And then it's more carried out even after Jesus ascends into heaven through the early work of the apostles. So we're first introduced to this work of baptism in Mark's gospel, chapter 1 verses four through five, John the Baptist was out in the wilderness preaching the message of repentance, telling people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that Christ was coming. And so he was calling them to confess, to repent of their sins. And in concert with that, what they were doing as they confessed, as they repented, is that they were being baptized to publicly affirm uh, that they had confessed and repented of their sins. So this is what we see in Mark 1, 4, and 5. It says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So with the confession of sin, with the repentance of sin, uh, was the work of baptism. We continue to see this in John 4 through the ministry of Jesus. It says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So this work continues. Jesus, as, as people are believing the message of the gospel, as they're surrendering their lives to follow him, uh, they publicly affirm their commitment to him through baptism, which is a baptism that he was carried out uh, through his disciples. We see this continued through the ministry of the apostles in the early church. So last week, we looked briefly at the miracle of the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. There's 120 believers gathered together in a room in Jerusalem. They're praying together. And as they're praying, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And the miracle of Pentecost was that they miraculously began to speak in other languages at a time when people from all over the world were gathered and they were able to hear the gospel in their language. And as the people heard the message of the gospel, they, they began to experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They began to understand that it was their sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And so as they're listening to Peter preach, they, they just, just prompts this response where they say, they say well, then, then what do we do? And this is the instruction Peter gives them in Acts 2.38. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you. Every one of you, for the, for, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then we skip ahead a few verses to verse 41. We see that those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people one day respond to the gospel, and 3,000 people one day, they're baptized. That's a busy Sunday afternoon, right? And nobody's watching football that afternoon. That this is all day long, that they're, they're celebrating those who have been publicly admitted into the church and publicly profess their faith in Jesus through baptism. So that's the New Testament pattern. People hear the gospel, they understand the gospel, they believe the gospel, and then they publicly profess their faith in Christ through the act of baptism. Second, why should we baptize? 
what we believe, again, according to God's word here, that we do this out of loving obedience. What is given to us here in the Great Commission is, is given to us as a command by Christ, which means if we profess to be followers of Jesus and we refuse to be baptized, or as professing followers of Jesus' local church, we're refusing to baptize people, uh, then we're really living in disobedience to what Christ has called us to do. That this is a, a plain command given to us in the Great Commission. Make disciples, baptize them, teach them to observe all that I've commanded. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14, very simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's, it's not that God loves us because we keep his commandments, but what we do prove when we walk in obedience, we're following the commandments the Lord's laid out to us, we prove that we love him. And so if we love him, we will be obedient to keep what he's commanded us to do. And what we're commanded to do here in Matthew 28 is to be baptized. Think of baptism this morning. This is how we teach it uh, in, in baptism classes. This is how we'll talk about it next week when we observe baptism. Think, think about baptism like this wedding ring that I'm wearing right now. Do I have to have this ring to, to be legally married to my wife? No, I don't have to have this ring. Now, if I want to stay married to my wife, from her perspective, it would behoove me to wear this ring, correct? So, so I, I'm not required legally, I'm not obligated to have one of these in order uh, to be married. So again, in the same way, baptism does not save us. We'll look in a second, it's our faith in Jesus Christ that saves us. But if, if I just downright refused to wear this ring, if I was hostile about wearing this ring, if I was pushing back against wearing this ring, in spite of the fact that those are my wife's wishes, then you might rightly start to question my commitment to her. Like, are you really in on this? Like, what is your resistance to, to putting that on? Because here, here's the thing, you know, we, we've been married uh, almost 10 years and um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but man, I, I can't go more than about five seconds without this, without feeling really, really weird. I was trying to think this past week, man, like what is the longest I have had this ring off my finger in the last uh, 10 years? And I, I think outside of a couple of major surgeries, I couldn't think of a single example where I had it off my hand for maybe just two or three minutes, depending on what I was doing. And so it's just a thing where we have to ask ourselves, listen, if you're being really, really resistant to doing the thing that publicly affirms you as a follower of Jesus, do we really belong to Jesus? Because here's what I know. I love my wife. Nobody's got to force me to wear this ring. I want to wear this ring because I want something that publicly symbolizes that I belong to her and that we're in a covenant of marriage together. We follow Jesus in baptism out of obedience to his word. And, and, and one of the greatest evidences that we've truly come to faith in Jesus Christ is that we are excited to publicly declare that faith through this work of baptism. Well, one of my favorite stories in the whole New Testament is the story from Acts chapter 8 about Philip, uh, who has the opportunity to share the gospel with a man uh, who is an Ethiopian eunuch. The man is uh, reading scripture on his own, but he doesn't understand it. And so Philip sits down and he, un he uh, unpacks the scripture for him and helps him understand what it is that he's reading and how that scripture has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he shares the gospel with him. And here is how uh, that passage unfolds, Acts 8, 35 through 38. It says, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. Don't you love that? So they're just traveling along the way and he's, he's really, he's seeking clearly. He's, he's reading scripture. He doesn't really understand what's going on, but Philip explains it to him. He shares the gospel with them. He believes as you need to repent and be baptized. And they're, they're just walking along. He's like, there's water right there. What stops you from being baptized? And how's Philip respond? Absolutely nothing. 
Let's go. And so they walk down there together and they celebrate this. And, and, and this is what, what I fear sometimes is as I interact with people in our community, uh, sometimes within our own church and, and definitely here just sort of in, in the Bible Belt South, you know, I don't hear a whole lot of people very excited when they talk about Jesus. And it just makes me wonder sometimes, like, do, how much do we really understand what Jesus Christ has done for us? How much do we really understand what God has given us in his son, Jesus, that he in his grace sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth to live a perfect sinless life, something you and I could never do on our own, and then not just to live for us, but to stand in our place, to die the death that we deserve, not just die for us in a generic sense, but to die in our place instead of us, to absorb the fullness of the Father's wrath against sin, God who is a a holy and just judge that's poured out on Jesus Christ. And then we who deserved death and condemnation and eternal destruction, he offers us who were his enemies, who are the reason the cross had to happen, he offers us a free gift of salvation. Something that we respond to in faith. Is is anybody else excited about that today? I'm just curious. How much do we truly understand what he's done for us? And so listen, if you're you're really hesitant to share about who Jesus is, either just personally or publicly through baptism, I think you really have to pause and reflect and examine your heart. If you don't have excitement and you don't have joy about what God has given you in Jesus Christ, we have to ask if we've truly understood this gospel. Because here's a picture of a man. He heard and he believed and he could not wait. And he publicly professes his faith in Christ. I love this passage because it just perfectly mirrors the Great Commission here in Matthew 28. The Great Commission says, go and make disciples. And what's Philip doing here? He's going and sharing the gospel and making a disciple. Specifically of all nations, this man was an Ethiopian, baptizing them. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Teaching them. He opens his mouth. He teaches the scripture. He shares the good news. And that's the pattern all throughout the New Testament. Someone preaches the gospel. People hear the gospel. They believe in the gospel. And then they profess their faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. So again, Christians of all stripes pretty much agree on those two things. That we should be baptized, it's for everyone, and that we do this out of loving obedience to Jesus. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky. When should we baptize? When should we baptize? Here's what we believe as a church family. Following an authentic conversion. Following an authentic conversion. There's really three big questions uh, that we as a church family get uh, pertaining to, to baptism. Listen, we, we could spend uh, two, three uh, hours here and just, just diving into different perspectives on, on Christian baptism across all of the centuries. I don't have time to dive into all that. So what I want to do today is I want to address just the three primary questions that we get as a church family and, and then just show you why it is that we just continue to affirm uh, believers' baptism by immersion is what we clearly see displayed in God's Word. The three questions primarily that we engage are uh, the question of, does baptism wash away sin? Uh, what about infant baptism? And then what about rebaptism? I've already been baptized, but I'm not sure really if that's something I truly understood. Should I be baptized uh, again? So let's address uh, all of those questions very quickly. First uh, is the question, does baptism wash away sin? Does baptism save us? The, the short answer to this uh, from our perspective is no. Uh, this is, uh, many of you maybe grew up in a Roman Catholic background. Some strands of, of Lutheran teaching would teach uh, that baptism is a work that washes away original sin. But we believe that God's word is just plainly and abundantly clear. We are not saved by any works. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 
There is no work that saves us. Baptism is given to us by Jesus as a command to obey. And if we could be saved simply by being baptized, that would mean that we can be saved by completing a work. And scripture is just clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. The apostle Paul writes, you are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. Uh, I think simplest example of this, that we see that baptism is not required for salvation, that it's faith in Jesus that saves us, uh, is the picture of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. That they're standing there and they're taking literally their dying breaths together side by side. He acknowledges who Jesus is. He realizes he's the son of God. And what does Jesus say to him in that moment? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, was that man baptized? No. I've heard some some people try to look at that passage and be like, well, it rained and that's how God baptized. Like, come on, man. No, no, he wasn't baptized in that moment. And yet it doesn't stop Jesus from affirming and telling him, today you will be with me in, in paradise. Because baptism is not the work that saves us. Baptism is a work that we participate in in order to demonstrate that we have been saved. So baptism is not a work. So church, you need to understand this morning. Water does not cleanse you of your sin. We are cleansed of our sin only by the blood of Jesus Christ. He shed it for us on our behalf and it's through faith and his life and death and resurrection that we find our salvation. Second is the question, uh, bigger question here, what about infant baptism? Before I dive into this this morning, I just want to lay this, this out at the, the very, very beginning because I understand that there's, there's a number of perspectives probably even in this room uh, this morning about uh, just being on your upbringing and the, the threat of Christianity that you maybe grew up within or just your understanding. And so let me just say right out of the gate today, we believe uh, there are faithful followers of Jesus Christ on both sides of this conversation. Okay, some of my closest friends in ministry, uh, we disagree on this subject of, of baptism. I, I don't embrace infant baptism, they do. And so we uh, could sit down and listen, I could articulate their position for them and they could articulate my position for me. Uh, and, and we get together, we love each other, we're, we're laboring for the gospel together, but, but praise God, I just, I just think they're a little bit wrong. And, and, and they think I'm wrong. And it's, and, it's, um, and it's great. And we just disagree to the glory of God. And like, I would have no problem with many of them standing right here and preaching God's word to our conversation, not about baptism, but maybe other things. And, and, and so we'd have no problem with them sharing that. They would have no problem with me going there. We have no problem, no qualms. And we do, we have done this locally, send people to each other's churches because we feel like, hey, you guys might be able to minister to them more effectively than we can. So, so just hear me out this morning because I know this gets a little bit sensitive when I say, if, if this is how you were baptized, we are not saying that you're not a follower of Jesus. Jesus. We just disagree on this, this one particular subject of baptism, and, and that's what, this is what we embrace as, as a church. So uh, the, the simplest response we can give when it comes to perspectives on infant baptism is that uh, we embrace believer's baptism by immersion because we just don't see a single explicit example of an infant being baptized anywhere in the New Testament but we just don't see it. Every time we see someone uh, as an individual who is baptized, it's someone who has, uh, like we've seen in scripture, we'll see again here in just a moment, they've heard the message of the gospel, they've believed in the message of the gospel, they've professed faith in Jesus Christ, and then they publicly declare it through baptism. Uh, You might hear that and say, well, Taylor, what about all the passages in the New Testament regarding household baptisms? Sometimes it says that someone uh, came to know Christ and not just them, but their household. Well, uh, again, what all of those passages have in common is that none of them uh, either explicitly state or even imply that infants were present. You have to assume that. 
And so you, you might hear that and say, well, Taylor, it's also clear then it doesn't explicitly say that there weren't infants present. And so I think what we have to do there is then just ask the question, okay, well, then do we have reason based on anything else that we see in Scripture to assume uh, that there were? Because what we can do is we can explicitly look at other places in Scripture where people were baptized following a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but we lack an explicit expression of someone being baptized as an infant or before uh, making a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And so general rule of, of biblical interpretation is when God's Word appears to be unclear uh, or vague or gray in, in one particular text, what we do is we move to another text where it is clear what happened. And what we clearly see in the New Testament are people taking the step of baptism after they have made a profession of faith uh, in, in Jesus Christ. And, and so it, it's, uh, there, there's a lot we could d- dive into this morning in terms of church history. Again, the first century, um, while uh, servants were generally counted as being part of households, children generally were not. Uh, so on that basis, we don't have reason to assume that children were there. Uh, more than that, we don't see really any in, uh, evidence of infant baptism uh, until about the second century, some would say as late as the third century in the early church. And you can make a strong case that uh, the reason that was, was, was what came about where it was in response to a couple of different things. Uh, the first being that uh, children, infants had a high mortality rate at this point in time in history. So there was a fear that they would uh, die early or die young. And uh, throughout the second and third century, there were many who were wrongly teaching that baptism was the work that saved. And so uh, parents were afraid uh, that their children might die young, that if they, they didn't die, or if they died before they were baptized, then they would not have eternal security. Uh, and so for that reason, many of them in the second, third century uh, were baptizing children as infants. But uh, turn with me in your Bible here for just a second. Um, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. And one of these passages uh, regarding household baptism. Again, there, there's a number of these passages through the New Testament. We don't have time to dive into all of them, but I want to read this one because I, I think what it makes clear for us is that this act of baptism is always in concert with those who are hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. And this is what we find uh, in Acts 16, uh, verses 30 through 34. This is an account of a Philippian jailer. And he has been watching over some of the apostles. They've had the opportunity to share the gospel with him. Uh, They're now being released. And uh, this is what uh, he says to them. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Verse 30 says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. So so it seems pretty clear here, like, hey, this isn't just something that's for them. It's going to be for the whole family. But pay attention. This is an important nuance here in verse 32. It says, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. So as they're sharing the gospel, when when you you say that they're speaking the word to all who are in the house, it's, it's pretty clear those who were listening were capable of hearing the word. We're not given a specific age, but they were at least of some age to be able to hear the gospel and comprehend the gospel. It says, verse 33, and they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with the entire household. So the entire household had an understanding of what was happening. They knew that there was cause for rejoicing because uh, they had come to faith in Christ that he had believed in God. So again, we just, we just think it's, it's, it's clear in these passages, even though it includes a household, we have no reason to assume or to believe that it was anyone other that, who was capable of hearing the gospel and responding to the gospel. Again, many of you I know this morning, you'll, you'll hear this and say, well, Taylor, it's, it's not just about what's happened in the New Testament. You also have to take into account the Old Testament. 
Uh, so many proponents of, of infant baptism would say in the Old Testament, the old covenant sign that God had for his people was uh, the sign of circumcision. And, and so the same way that that covenant sign was applied uh, to infants at birth, in the same way we should apply the new covenant sign, which is baptism, to those who were born uh, within families of, of followers of Jesus Christ. But, but listen, this is like the whole message of the New Testament, that your physical birth does not affirm you into the family of God. But that's the whole point of Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter three. He says, you must be born what? Again. Your first birth doesn't do it. We personally, all of us individually, we have to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And so honestly, I think if you're gonna make a case for infant baptism, the strongest case to try to do it is with the old covenant and new covenant connections. But even with that, here's why I think it falls short. Because the earliest picture that we have of God's new covenant people is right here in the New Testament. And you would think, at least I would think, that if God in his infinite wisdom, if that's what he truly wanted for his church for all time, that the majority of baptisms across the history of the church be performed on infants who are born into Christian families, don't you think God in his infinite wisdom would have given us just one example of this in the New Testament? but he doesn't. And for that reason, we just, we just feel like the clear picture in scripture is for those who profess faith in Jesus Christ to then be baptized uh, after they have publicly, or after they have, have acknowledged him as Lord and, and Savior. So again, I just wanna, wanna book in that once again. If you're here today and that is your conviction, this is me saying right now, we are not looking at you saying you're not a real follower of Jesus. Okay, so can, we, can we play nice with that? It's like, like, we are not saying, we're not judging you, we're not looking down on you, we're not condemning you. Uh, we do disagree. Obviously, we wanna do that as graciously as we can. We don't think less of you. It's not that we don't think you're a follower of Christ because you've not been baptized. We just believe, according to our conviction, you are a follower of Christ who still needs to be baptized. And we would encourage you to take that step of obedience. Uh, third is the question regarding rebaptism. Uh, this is one that commonly comes up in, in our culture today. So someone, uh, maybe you're at a young age or maybe even as an adult, you took that step of baptism uh, to profess faith in Jesus Christ. But looking back, you, you don't really understand it. Uh, what was, did I really understand what I was doing? Have I truly come to faith in, in Christ? So what do we do with rebaptism? Well, uh, if you are a true believer in Jesus Christ, you're faithfully walking with the Lord. The, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident in your life. You have a passion to be with God's people, to be with his church, to know his word, to be with him in prayer. You have a, a heart for the lost. If you are an authentic follower of Jesus Christ, then no, uh, there is no biblical precedent for, for being baptized again. There's one baptism. We, we don't see this, but here's what we do see in the New Testament is that every single baptism is supposed to happen in concert with an authentic conversion. And so here's something that I do think commonly happens across our culture today. So again, go back to infant baptism for just a second. This is a common story. I've interacted with this story a number of times in our own community or, or people just all throughout the Southeast here. And here's the story is great, uh, great, great granddaddy 10 generations ago helped build the building. And our church, our family's name has been on the membership roll for, for 250 years. And I was baptized there as an infant, but there's, listen, they've not darkened the doors of a church in years. Like no desire to know God's word, no desire to be with God's people, no desire uh, to make Christ known, no passion, no heart for the lost. Functionally are living just like the rest of the world, but they're pointing back to that spiritual resume to say, no, 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 I'm good. I've checked those boxes and I've done those things. And listen, just so y'all don't think I'm picking on infant baptism here, let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum because let me tell you what's also true, maybe even more true in this community, are people who as children or as an adults, 
They're pointing back to the fact that one day at a church service or in vacation Bible school, they prayed a prayer, they filled out a card, they walked an aisle, they got baptized, and that means they're good. That there's never been no transformation in their life. There's never been any change. Continue to live in sin just like the rest of the world does because they're pointing back to that experience thinking that they got their baptism on the right side, that suddenly this means that we're totally good. Church, we've got to understand once again, it is not this work of baptism that saves us. It is our faith in Jesus Christ by the grace of God that you and I are saved. And on the authority of God's word, if there's been absolutely no change between our old life and our new life, then we have no biblical ground to claim that we're truly followers of Christ. So in, in that case, it's like, yeah, you, you might have gotten wet. You might have gone for a quick swim. But biblically, you've not experienced a true baptism because you were never buried with Christ. And you're still living according to your sin. Well, look, turn with me for just a moment here uh, to Romans chapter 6. We're going to read here verses 1 through 4. And I want you to see how the Apostle Paul connects this experience of an authentic conversion with the work of baptism and see what he shows us here. Romans 6, 1 through 4, Paul writes this. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Listen to the question he asks. How can we who died to sin still live in it? For Paul, this is illogical. For all of us as followers of Jesus, this should be illogical. What he's saying is it is literally impossible that if you have truly died to your sin, that you continue to live in your sin. It's not possible for you to be dead in your sin and alive in your sin at the same time. Either our old self and our sin was buried with Christ in the grave and we've been raised to walk in newness of life with him or we've done nothing. We've not actually truly come to know him. Verse three says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Church, you need to understand this morning, just because you went under the waters of baptism does not mean that your old self was buried with Jesus Christ. That's where salvation is, is found. It's not found in water. It's found by making a, faith, a profession of faith in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of coming before God to acknowledge I have both sinned and I am a sinner. To repent of our sin, to cease our sin, to turn our backs on our sin and to follow Jesus Christ. But what, what does this look like? to be buried with Christ in baptism, to, to fully turn your back on your old life as you pursue new life in Jesus Christ and walk in the newness of life. I want to share a story with you, something that's, that unfolded here within our, our own church family uh, just over the last few years. So uh, a few years back, we were still meeting at Buford High School. We had a, a young woman who started uh, gathering with, with our church family for worship each week. She was a professing follower of Jesus Christ, had not uh, been in the church for, for a really long time. And so she, uh, she came in and uh, started worshiping with us each week and was starting to feel connected, wanting to, to potentially get involved serving uh, in, in a couple of our ministries. And so we don't uh, require um, everyone, for, for every volunteer role, not, not every volunteer role requires that you be a member within our church. There are some uh, limited volunteer capacities that we allow people just to, to jump in and begin helping uh, right away as a way to get connected. And so um, she uh, was 
was interested in, in serving in, in our kids' ministry. And so uh, she went to Leandra, who's our, our kids' ministry director. They started talking about that. And, and while we don't require everyone who serves to be in membership, there is still for, especially our kids' ministry and our student ministry, there is a volunteer covenant uh, that we, uh, we require everybody to sign because we want to put people before our children and before our students who are uh, being faithful examples of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. And so um, at, at this particular time, uh, this young woman had been in a, engaged in a long relationship and uh, she's living with her boyfriend. She's not married. And uh, part of our, our membership covenant is our membership covenant and this volunteer covenant very clearly states and addresses uh, cohabitation and uh, sex before marriage. And listen, if some of you hear that and you're like, that's a 1950s thing. Like, we, why are we still doing that? Uh, we believe God's word is abundantly clear and has never changed um, that a shared bed and a shared home are for a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. And so that, that's a line that we hold. Uh, here's a church family for those getting engaged in, in leadership. And so Leandra just very graciously, lovingly sat with her and said, hey, listen, because of that, we can't allow you to serve right now. You, you worship with us every single week. We have welcomed you in. We'll continue to welcome you in. Let us connect you to community group. Let us help you in any way uh, that we possibly can. And so she heard these things uh, and initially it really, really frustrated her. And so this is what happened uh, over the next several months is she, for a period of time, she left our church family. And she started worshiping with another church in the community, and sort of the same story started to unfold. She wanted to get involved in the kids' ministry and the student ministry. So when she got into those conversations, uh, she was just very, very upfront about her current circumstances and what was going on. Is this going to be a problem? And they looked at her and said, no, that's no problem. Come on in and serve. And when that happened, she was immediately overcome by the conviction of the Holy Spirit because she knew in that moment that she was living her life in a way that was not in step with the will or with the word of God. And she could not believe that a local church was going to allow her to come in in spite of the fact that she was opening, openly living in sin and basically tell her that's no big deal. And so this is what she did. She called us back. She sent us an email, said, can we meet up? And so we sat down with her and, and we spent a couple of hours with her one day. We prayed with her and we encouraged her. And she said, listen, I want to faithfully follow Jesus with all of my life, but I don't really know what this means. I've been in this relationship for a long time and, and I just don't know what's next. And so here's just what we communicated to her from day one. We just said, listen, we, we love you and there's a place for you here. Come worship with us each week. Get involved in community. Invite, uh, invite the, the encouragement, the accountability of other brothers and sisters. Lord, we will walk with you through every single step of, of this process. And so for the next few months, she just continued to worship with us week in, week out. And it was about this time last year, uh, at the end of the, the Grace and Grit message series that we did, we, we gave an opportunity for people to publicly respond to the gospel. And, and on this particular Sunday, she got up and she responded. And so we continued to meet because she said, I, I want to be all in for, for Jesus. I want to fully surrender my life to Jesus. I still don't know what, what's next. And so we prayed with her again. We encouraged her again. And that day she went home uh, to her boyfriend and she said, who was a, a professing believer himself. And she said, listen, if we're going to be together, we have to do this God's way. And so either we're going to do this God's way together uh, or, or this relationship is, is not going to work out. So a couple weeks later, um, she uh, went forward. She made the step to be baptized and he came with her to, to see her, her baptism. And they began to worship together. They made some changes in their life. I'll never forget it. Sunday, several months ago, when we'd already moved to the YMCA, I'm standing in the back corner of this room on a Sunday morning. And both of them come up to me with a huge smile on her face. And she's got this beautiful ring on her finger. And she says, this past week, we went, we're going to have a ceremony later, but it was important to us to make this right in the eyes of God. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to do it faithfully and we're going to do it together. And that's what they're doing today. And we rejoice in the story. And, and listen, I, I know some of you, man, you hear that and you, you are incredulous that we address the truth of their sin. You, like you cannot believe that. Like that just blows your mind that we would have the audacity to call someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus 
to live according to the word of God. And that's, that's something that you and the Lord are gonna have to work out because we think God's word is clear on these things. But some of you, you're really struggling because you, can't, you, you don't understand how it is we embrace somebody with so much sin. This is the, the, the picture that we see of Christ in the gospel is, is not a God who is about either truth or love, but a God who is the fullness of truth and love. And this has been our commitment as a church family since day one, that by God's grace, we're going to continue to walk in in the years ahead, is that yes, we are going to be bold about what we believe. If God's word says it and we're going to teach it, we're going to stand on the authority of his word, come what may. We don't shift with the outside world. We anchor ourselves forever to the word of God. We're going to be bold about what we believe, but this is what I can also tell you and something that's going to make some of you uncomfortable. We're going to let people belong before they believe. We're going to let them see there's a family here that loves you, and we will walk with you through this. We will do everything that we can to help you pursue God's best for this. We're not going to shun them because of this. We're not going to push them away because of this. We're going to, we're going to counsel, and we're going to pray, and we're going to be patient. This is the work of discipleship. It's not always an overnight process. And yet that's the work that God calls us to as followers of, of Jesus. And so I just, I just want to ask you this morning to take an honest examination of your, your own heart and ask this question. Can you say, like she had, that you have fully and totally surrendered to Jesus Christ over every area of your life. Because we did this really weird thing in our culture today, which is to, to preach and to believe this gospel that says, I can have Jesus and still keep my sin. And there is no version of that in the Bible. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? We've either been buried with Christ or we're still dead in our sins. One of the other has happened or hasn't happened. And so, so I, I just want to challenge you this morning to examine your heart, to examine your life, because I, I just fear that so many, we, we profess to be followers of Jesus, but we're still living our lives just like the rest of the world. You're still getting hammered every single weekend, still living and living people that you're not married to. Teens, you, you profess to be followers of Jesus, but you got like a whole hidden life on Instagram and Snapchat. Like those snaps might disappear from your phone. They're forever before the eyes of God. He sees it. Don't say amen. I'm talking to everybody right now. This is all of us. Are we fully surrendered to Jesus Christ? Because listen, if your plan right now is to stand before God at the end of your life and make sure he understands that you are the exception to his word, I'm sure that's gonna go really well in that moment. It's not. Have we fully surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ? Because the, and this is important because the difference for us here is eternity. Can we say that we've truly surrendered every corner of our life to him? and surrender to him as the sovereign Lord over our lives. How should we baptize last? We, we see very simply from the Great Commission, we baptize together and we do it in his name. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is something that we do together. This is the example of Jesus. You know, we, we can get into why do, do we baptize in terms of loving obedience and command, but, but what this language does of, of baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is it takes us all the way back to the gospel of Mark at the most famous baptism of all time, which was not my baptism. It was not your baptism. It wasn't the apostles' baptism. It wasn't Billy Graham's baptism. It was the baptism of Jesus himself. I think sometimes we forget that he himself took this step. He never calls us to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself. And so this is what we see in Mark 1, 9 through 11. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son and with you I am well pleased. 
So you see this picture of the Trinity at the baptism of Jesus. You have the Father who's speaking from heaven. You have the Son who comes up out of the water. You have the Spirit that descends upon him like a dove. And you hear the voice of the Father, you are my Son, and with you I'm well pleased. And people all around heard that. They heard who Jesus was. That was his identity as a true Son of the Father. And it's when we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, when we give him total and complete authority over us, this is what makes us pleasing in the eyes of God is when we're covered in the blood of Christ. He's made this possible for us. And it's something that he calls us to do together. Church, understand your profession of faith is personal, but it is not private. This is something that we do together in community. A few years ago, I was, uh, took a group of students, it's about five, six years ago now, I took a group of students to a camp. Uh, and at this camp, uh, one of our students made a, a profession of faith in Jesus one night. And so he's excited. And, and that night we sat down, we talked about, hey, what, this is what next steps are, are going to look like. And uh, we want to go home and we want to publicly uh, affirm your faith through, through baptism and celebrate that with the church family. He's, he's excited about this. Well, the next day, the, all the students are running around and doing all these activities all over the camp. And he comes running up to me uh, while I'm out on the soccer field and he's soaking wet. I got his shoes on and his shirt and shorts and everything. And I'm like, hey, what are you doing, man? Like, you know, if there was like water balloon fight or what was going on, he's like, hey, I just need to tell you something. I'm like, what? He's like, I just got baptized. I was like, oh, cool. I, I didn't know, like, were some of the camp staff baptizing? Was one of the camp pastors baptizing? Like, did you jump in with another random youth group? Like, what, what happened here? And he's like, oh, no, no, no. Like, I just, I just jumped in the water by myself. And, and he was like, I just, I just told Jesus, like, hey, I'm all in on this thing. And I jumped in the water. And went. I was like, hey, love the enthusiasm. <laughs> but this is actually something that we do together. And we do it in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, like, we'll do this when you get home. He's like, no, I want to do it now. And so he, he calls his, his, his parents. They're like, that's fine. He's, he's like that. Let him do his thing. Uh, and, and just take a video for us and, and uh, let us show it. So we were able to kind of live stream it and let them check in on that. Right there at the camp, we got permission to baptize him in, in the pool. And there's just this incredible joy. And you look at the baptism of Jesus, and it's, it's such a weird thing because why did Jesus need to be baptized? He'd never sinned. There's nothing to repent of here. There's nothing for him to, to turn from. He's not putting his faith in himself. So why is it that he enters into the waters of baptism? And the answer, I think, for us is very simple. It's to identify with you and I. There's a picture that happens at the baptism of Jesus where all of these people had been coming to the river and they'd been repenting and confessing their sins. And then they were going into the water to symbolize that they had been cleansed, that they were righteous and they were walking in the holiness of God as they prepared themselves for the coming of the Lord. And so there's almost this sense and what's being demonstrated in the baptism of Jesus is that he went under the water in his perfection and he took up the sin that we had left there. He took it on himself. And he's made possible for us to demonstrate through our baptism that we are going into the water and leaving our sin and taking up his perfection. That Christ leaves for us there what we could never earn for ourselves. And what we're doing in baptism is we're, we're publicly saying the old me is dead and gone. Jesus Christ is not just my savior. Listen, everybody wants a savior. Very few people want a Lord. We're saying in baptism, he is the complete and sovereign Lord over every corner of my life. There's absolutely nothing that I am holding back from him. There's no secret that I'm clinging to. There's nothing that I will not walk away from because I have found my greatest treasure and joy in Jesus Christ. And that's what we're communicating through baptism. Is we're raising up with him boldly in our new identity as his sons and his daughters. Jesus went into this water to identify with sinners so that sinners like you and I 
could be identified as saints and as his sons and daughters.